Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. From the University of Eastern Finland comes a study about black currants. They're very good if you have a problem with your metabolism. Black currants have a beneficial effect on post-meal glucose response, meaning after you eat, how high does your blood sugar go? If you've eaten some refined carbohydrates or things with sugar, it's going to spike up. That's not good. And what they're looking at is, what can help that? Well, black currants have a beneficial effect on the blood glucose response after a meal. They balance the glucose response of ingested sugar by attenuating its rise and delaying its fall. The effect is likely associated with berry-derived polyphenolic compounds, what we call the anthocyanins, which are rich in black currants. Now, I've known about black currants my whole life because it was one of the few berries that we actually had growing down in West Virginia, along with black uh, blackberries and blueberries and strawberries. And so in season, you could eat it, but also when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm sure many of you, when you were growing up, your parents or grandparents did canning. They jarred. They, they made preserves. And black currant uh, jam was one of those. Now, most people use sugar, which was not good, but I had an aunt that used honey. She had her own beehive. And so that's my first exposure to the jams. And, and even today, you don't have to use honey. You can use stevia, but you can make your own. It's very delicious. And now the black currants are a little tart, but they're really good for you. And you can buy them dried, or you can dry them yourself. I have a drying yet rack. It's not expensive. It costs about $300 keeps the temperature around 120 degrees, which means it's still a raw food, even though you've evaporated overnight the water out of stream beans, tomatoes, papaya, mango, apples, peaches, pears, plums. And then I can spray on it a combination of lemon juice with ascorbic acid. Just by spraying it, you get a much longer life out of it. And then you can store it if you really want it to last a long time. Put it in one of the uh, Ziploc bags, press out the air from it, make it as flat as possible. It can last years. In any case, most Americans never have had a black current in their life. But for all of our pre-diabetic and diabetic people, it could help you have a few of them, like a tablespoon, after a meal. You know, in India, for example... It's very common that on that tray that spins around, that all your little cups of food are on, they'll have fennel, anise. They'll have a little spoon. You just take a little spoonful, chew it, swallow it. helps with digestion. Do the same thing with black currants because it can make a difference keeping your blood sugar devil level down into a normal area. This was done at the Institute of Public Health Clinical Nutrition, University of Eastern Finland, as well as at Savonia University of Applied Sciences. We have more, including exploring the beneficial effects of rhodiola, rosea, and panax ginseng on metabolic perimeters. People are confused about which ginseng is the best. I'll tell you that in a few moments. 
This is the Universidade Marília, which is in Brazil, about ginseng. By the way, panic ginseng is Asian ginseng. And rhodiola, R-H-O-D-I-O-L-A, rosea, R-O-S-E-A. It's also called rose root. A very beneficial article in the Journal of Medicinal Foods. But also today, we're going to offer a moment a caveat. Caveat emptor means consumer beware. I am pro-vaccine. I've always been pro-vaccine. Providing that, the vaccine can be shown to be safe and effective. And that there was a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, and the, the placebo was not another vaccine or an adjuvant, which they do all the time, but rather a saline solution. And that it was done over a period of years so that you have long-term uh, monitoring to show that it works and doesn't have a delayed effect, as some vaccines do, where you really only see the major negative impact one, two, three years later. Now, when they have that vaccine, I will fully support it. But until that time, when I look at what is missing in that, that model of behavior that should be a cautionary tale, shouldn't we always put the public health and their safety first and the vaccine makers' profits second? And right now, it's just the opposite, rushing through vaccines. So I'm going to share a cautionary tale where we were all told and dutifully responded as a nation. 40 million people got the vaccine. And that was a pandemic where there's going to be a huge amount of deaths. Well, it didn't happen that way. And the only people who died were people who got the vaccine and that's unfortunate, but a lot were paralyzed for life. Mike Wallace did a very exemplary job about that vaccine. It was the swine flu vaccine. Now, here's what's important. Listen carefully to what Mike Wallace is saying. Listen to the head of the CDC. Listen to the only scientist, Dr. Morris, who said there is no pandemic, there's no epidemic, there's no crisis, we shouldn't be doing this. And he was, he was censored. And all the people who were wrong, none of them had to pay for being wrong. So imagine what we're doing today that could put enormous risk on the, on right at the feet of anyone using a vaccine, especially when we have no long-term studies. And we, and it's experimental. It's never been used before. Even the antibody tests used to determine if you're COVID positive is not accurate. It's not a gold standard. And even the death rates have been conflated. And now they, you don't see any flu and pneumonia rates. Why? Because those have now been conflated into COVID. And this is not guessing. This is proven. In fact, I'm posting today several studies showing in Germany, for example, dozens of studies showing that there is no difference in the death rate this year, last year, year before, the year before. But there is a difference in how many people died of heart disease and the flu. 
Well, if you've had ever-increasing risk of dying from heart disease and it shows it and suddenly you see this steep drop-off, then something is wrong with how the figures are being manipulated. So now thousands upon tens of thousands of scientists and physicians in the establishment who are pro-vaccine and pro-pharma, they're saying that what's being done is wrong. We're simply providing a platform since Google censors them, Facebook censors them, Twitter censors them, and the mainstream media condemns them, deplatforms them, and shames them, and cancels them. Interesting to watch this. For those of us who have been in the alternative field, that's normal. So we're going to have that clip. Also, we're going to have a, a short, very short clip by a physician from the CDC explaining why, and listen carefully, why asymptomatic is very difficult to infect anyone else. Well, why then are we taking people who have tested positive? And why are more people testing positive? Because you're testing more people. And the vast majority of these are completely healthy people. And yet, we're now saying, oh, you're an active case. They're not an active case. So, we're going to play a few of those clips. I have a lot more to get into. And by the way, just to help people out, if for any reason, wherever you're at, and you can't be near a radio or computer, call this number. You can hear the show live Monday to Friday, noon to 1, Eastern Standard Time, and Tuesday, 7 to 8, Eastern Standard Time. Here's the number to call. Always have it. 774-337-6033-774-337-6033. Or go to the archives if you miss it. 701-719-9976-701-719-9976. Now, now that you know that black currants, fresh, great, Frozen, good. Concentrate, excellent. By the way, if you want a great way to help your immune system in the morning, take a tablespoon of, of black blackberries, papaya, mango, tart cherry, the Montmorency cherry, and blueberry, concentrate, and bla add blackcurrant in there with elderberry, and put that into your shake phenomenally empowering to your immune system. In this study, researchers at the University of Mariela in Brazil evaluated the effects of rhodiola and Panax ginseng. And by the way, Panax ginseng is the Asian ginseng. But the best ginseng, in my opinion, is Korean ginseng. And the weakest ginseng is American ginseng. You find it in Wisconsin, you find it in the hills of West Virginia. These are all good. It's just that if you want the most powerful, if you have cancer, you want Korean ginseng. In any case, they also work at metabolic improvement and helping your muscles that have been damaged from exercise. And uh, what they found is that this, all of these are adaptogenic meaning they can help adapt to help your immune system. And this is traditional in all of your places around the world, in Ayurvedic medicine. They'll use these. And any herb that has adaptogenic properties generally help restore homeostasis. 
and strengthen the systems impaired by stress. So when you're stressed, your immune system takes a hit. That's why anything you can do if you have a serious illness to get out of stress, to relieve your stress, allows your body to have more opportunity to fight the disease that you're, that you're now maintaining. So anyhow, they, they did this experiment. And based upon these findings, the research concluded the, the rosea and the ginseng can minimize stress caused by exercise and improve physical performance. Just rhodiola, R-H-O-D-I-O-L-A, and Panax, P-A-N-A-X, ginseng. I think you know this without having a study, but there's a study published in Circulation, Heart Failure. University of Buffalo did the study, and it says that less sedentary time reduces heart failure risk in older women. Even with regular physical activity, older women, meaning from 50 to 80, who spend more waking hours in sedentary behaviors like sitting or lying down, have an increased risk of heart failure serious enough to require hospitalization. So this is just one more way to help prevent heart failure. Exercise more often. About every two hours a day, do something for about three or four or five minutes. That'll help. There was, by the way, in this particular study, research examined 81,000 postmenopausal women. The average age was 63 from the Women's Health Initiative study. So that's important. Also, from the University of Cordoba, as well as Queen Sophia University in Spain, comes a study about the Mediterranean diet. We have hundreds of outstanding studies about the Mediterranean diet. This one reduces the risk of having another heart attack. Heart disease is the main cause of death in developed countries. There is evidence that shows that factors related to lifestyle, such as diet, have a very strong influence on developing these kinds of diseases. But do they have any effect on patients who are already ill or have had a heart attack? So a team of two different university hospitals, as well as the Maimonides Biomedical Research Institute, published a study in PLOS Medicine it compared the effects of two different healthy diets on the endothelium, that's the walls that cover the arteries. A thousand patients who had previously had an acute myocardial infarction took part in the study and were monitored over the course of a year. And the research group had previously worked on a similar study with healthy patients. However, this is the first time it had been done with ill patients who are more likely to have another heart attack. Now, the degree of endothelial damage predicts the occurrence of future cardiovascular events as an acute myocardial infarction. That's why you want to take cayenne capsule each day, three times a day. That's why you want to take your vitamin E twice a day, magnesium twice a day, L-carnitine, coenzyme Q10 twice a day, especially before you go to bed, about an hour before you go to bed, because this helps protect the endothelial and protect your heart. And so half the patients were on the Mediterranean diet, lots of olive oil, eating lots of fruits and vegetables every day, having three servings of legumes, three of fish and three of nuts a week, 
and they were told to cut down or out on eating meat, especially red meat, and to avoid additional fats like margarine or butter and stay away from sugar. In contrast, the other group was told to follow a low-fat diet based on limiting all kinds of fat, both animal and plant, and increasing their intake of complex carbohydrates. Well, what they found was that those who were on the strict Mediterranean diet, rich in monounsaturated fatty acids, there's your olives, your olive oil, had already been proven to be a good strategy in order to improve endothelial function in overweight patients, as well as patients with high cholesterol. This is the first time that the benefits of following a Mediterranean diet have been shown among patients with heart disease to help them reduce the likelihood of having another heart attack. And finally, from Moshad University of Medical Science, a meta-analysis, meaning multiple studies, indicates saffron, S-A-F-F-R-O-N, that's that little orangish herb, looks like a thread, can help improve mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So that's very important. And uh, think of how many million of Americans suffer from dementia. So start using saffron each day. You can put it in, you can take it as in a supplement or you can put it into um, a salad, you can put it into rice. And by the way, Cashin University Medical Science has found that coenzyme Q10 is beneficial for diabetic kidney disease patients. So that's another good study. That's the latest on health and healing. We're 18 minutes into our program. We're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, you're going to hear Mike Wallace doing an interview and an investigative report on what happened with the swine flu. And then as he's speaking, think about what is similar by a small group of people controlling everything about the uh, COVID-19. Anthony Fauci, yes, the head of the CDC, the World Health Organization, the FDA, the U.S. Public Health Service, the White House, Trump's advisory group, now Biden's advisory group, and they have all been wrong on probably 80% of what they've advocated for the public. Oh, and by the way, uh, there is a, a vaccine specialist. Her name, you may or may not be aware of it, is Dr. Jane M. Orient, O-R-I-E-N-T. She's the executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and so she's going to be testifying tomorrow before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. And uh, immediately, the New York Times and all the mainstream media and all these Democrats start attacking her. Why are you allowing a so-called anti-vax doctor to be invited to test before, testify before Congress as if we only want our hand-picked pro-vaccine, pro-big people involved because they'll tell us the lies we need and all you get from these sources are lies. So in a, in a supposedly free society where we should have input from all sides, especially if someone is qualified, which she certainly is, and all, yes, of course they're attacking because 
she wants you to use the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc and zithromycin because that's been shown in over 177 studies, of which 122 are in peer review, to save lives. It's inexpensive, it's safe, and it works. But no, New York Times, Anthony Fauci, no one in the government wants you to use this. Wait for the big drug. Wait for the vaccine. That's interesting. Hmm. Let's just think about that for a moment. If, if what they say is true, then staying six feet away, why do you need a mask? If you have a mask, why do you have to stay six feet away? If the mask and six feet away both work, why have the vaccine? There's just too many questions. And is there science showing, absolutely good science, showing the mask works or showing it doesn't work? There's both. But what is irrefutable is what I gave you last week, that even if you're 100% pro-mask and social distancing, good. But that mask is shedding, and those fibers are going into your lungs, and that can cause terminal illness. Is anyone talking about that? No. So just to let you know how bad the science is on this. Now let's see what happened then and see if you can see any analogous uh, similarities to what is happening now. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Remember the swine flu scare of 1976? That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to $3.5 billion because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death, allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We picked up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed. This virus was the cause of a pandemic in 1918 and 1919 that resulted in over half a million deaths in the United States, as well as 20 million deaths around the world. See how easy it is to Thus, the U.S. government's publicity machine was cranked into action to urge all America to protect itself against the swine flu menace. Influenza is serious business. During major flu epidemics, millions of people are sick and thousands die. Well, this year you can get protection. The vaccines are safe, easy to take, and they can protect you against flu. So roll up your sleeve. Protect yourself. One of those who did roll up her sleeve was Judy Roberts. She was perfectly healthy, an active woman, when in November of 1976, she took her shot. Two weeks later, she says, she began to feel a numbness starting up her legs. I joked about it at that time. I said, I'll be numb to the knees by Friday if this keeps up. By the following week, I was totally paralyzed. So completely paralyzed, in fact, that they had to operate on her to enable her to breathe. And for six months, Judy Roberts was a quadriplegic. The diagnosis? A neurological disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS for short. These neurological diseases are little understood. They affect people in different ways. As you can see in these home movies taken by a friend, Judy Roberts' paralysis confined her mostly to a wheelchair for over a year. 
but this disease can even kill. Indeed, there are 300 claims now pending from the families of GBS victims who died, allegedly as a result of the swine flu shot. In other GBS victims, the crippling effects diminish and all but disappear. But for Judy Roberts, progress back to good health has been painful and partial. Now, I notice that your smile, Judy, is a little bit constricted. Yes, it is. Is it different from what it used to be? Very different. I have uh, a greatly decreased mobility in my lips. And uh, I can't drink through a straw on the right-hand side. I can't blow out birthday candles. Uh, I don't whistle anymore, for which my husband is grateful. It may be a little difficult for you to answer this question, but have you recovered as much as you are going to recover? Yes, this, this is it. So you will now have a legacy of braces on your legs for the rest of your life? Yes, the weakness in my hands will stay and the leg braces will stay. So Judy Roberts and her husband have filed a claim against the U.S. government. They're asking $12 million, though they don't expect to get nearly that much. Judy, why did you take the flu shot? I'd never taken any other flu shots, but I felt like this was going to be a major epidemic. And the only way to prevent a major epidemic of a, a really deadly variety of flu was for everybody to be immunized. Where did this so-called deadly variety of flu, where did it first hit back in 1976? It began right here at Fort Dix in New Jersey in January of that year when a number of recruits began to complain of respiratory ailments, something like the common cold. An army doctor here sent samples of their throat cultures to the New Jersey Public Health Lab to find out just what kind of bug was going around here. One of those samples was from a Private David Lewis who had left his sickbed to go on a forced march. Private Lewis had collapsed on that march, and his sergeant had revived him by mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. But the sergeant showed no signs of illness. A few days later, Private Lewis died. If this disease is so potentially fatal that it's going to kill a young, healthy man, a middle-aged schoolteacher doesn't have a prayer. The New Jersey lab identified most of those soldiers' throat cultures as the normal kind of flu virus going around that year, but they could not make out what kind of virus was in the culture from the dead soldier and from four others who were sick. So they sent those cultures to the Federal Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, for further study. A few days later, they got the verdict, swine flu. But that much-publicized outbreak of swine flu at Fort Dix involved only Private Lewis, who died, and those four other soldiers who recovered completely without the swine flu shot. If I had known at that time that the boy had been in a sickbed, got up, went out on a forced march, and then collapsed and died, I would never have taken a shot. The rationale for our recommendation was not on the basis of the death of uh, a single individual but it was on the basis that when we do see a change in the characteristics of the influenza virus, it is a massive uh, public health problem in this country. Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. He devised the swine flu program and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported, but none confirmed. There had been cases in uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media. There were cases in... Uh, none confirmed? 
Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu anywhere in the world? No. Now, nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form, giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine. And that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field tested? Uh, I, I can't say I would have to. Uh, it wasn't. I don't know. Well, I would think that you're in charge of the program. I would have to check uh, the records. I haven't uh, looked at this in some time. The information form, the consent form, was also supposed to warn people about any risks of serious complications following the shot. But did it? No, I had never heard of any reactions other than a sore arm, fever, this sort of thing. Judy Roberts' husband, Gene, also took the shot. Yes, I looked at that document. I signed it. Nothing on there said I was going to have a heart attack or I get Guillain-Barre, which I never heard of. What if people from the government, from the Center for Disease Control, what if they had indeed known about it? What would be your feeling? They should have told us. Did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders? Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications? That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. I've said that Dr. Hatwick had never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. Uh, and he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency, dated July 1976, list neurological complications as a possibility? I think the uh, consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating neurologic disorders to influenza immunization uh, was such that they did not feel that this association was a real one. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the American people that information? Uh, I think that uh, over the, the years we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible. As part of informing Americans about the swine flu threat, Dr. Sensor's CDC also helped create the advertising to get the public to take the shot. Let me read to you from one of your own agency's 
memos planning the campaign to urge Americans to take the shot. The swine flu vaccine has been taken by many important persons, he wrote. Example, President Ford, Henry Kissinger, Elton John, Muhammad Ali, Mary Tyler Moore, Rudolph Nureyev, Walter Cronkite, Ralph Nader, Edward Kennedy, etc., etc. True? Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular piece of paper, uh, but I do know that at least of that group, President Ford did take the vaccination. Did you talk to these people beforehand to find out if they planned to take the shot? I did not know. Did anybody? I do not know. Did you get permission to use their names in your campaign? I do not know. Mary, did you take a swine flu shot? No, I did not. Did you give them permission to use your name saying that you had or were going to? Absolutely not. Never did. Did you ask your own doctor about taking the swine flu shot? Yes, and at the time he thought it might be a good idea. Um, but I resisted it because I was leery of having the symptoms that sometimes go with that kind of inoculation. So you didn't? No, I didn't. Have you spoken to your doctor since? Yes. And? He's delighted that I didn't take that shot. You're in charge. Somebody's in charge. There are... This is your advertising strategy that I have a copy of here. Who's it signed by? This one is unsigned. But you, you'll acknowledge that it was your baby, so to speak. It uh, could have been from the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. It could be from CDC. I don't know. I'll be happy to take uh, responsibility for it. It's been three years now since you fell ill with GBS, right? Right. Has the federal government, in your estimation, played fair with you about your claim? No, I don't think so. Uh, it seems to be dragging on and on and on. And really, no end in sight that I can see at this point. With respect to the cases of Guillaume Barre, allegedly... Former Secretary of HEW Joseph Califano, too, was disturbed that there was no end in sight. So a year and a half ago, he promised that Uncle Sam would cut the bureaucratic red tape for victims suffering from GBS and would pay up quickly. We shouldn't hold them to an impossible or too difficult standard of proving that they were hurt. Even if we pay a few people a few thousand dollars that might not have deserved it, I think justice requires that we promptly pay those people who do deserve it. Who's making the decision to be so hard-nosed about settling? Well, I assume the uh, Justice Department is. Griffin uh, Bell, before he left? Well, the Justice Department agreed to the statement I made. It was cleared word for word with the lawyers in the Justice Department by my HEW lawyers. And that statement said, in effect... That, that statement said that we should pay uh, Guillaume Beret claims without regard to whether the federal government was negligent if they, re if they resulted from the swine flu shot. I think the government knows it's wrong. If it drags out long enough, that people will just give up. <laughs> Let it go. I, I am a little more adamant in my thoughts than my wife is because uh, I asked, told Judy to take the shot. She wasn't going to take it, and uh, she never had had shots. And uh, I'm mad with my government because they knew the facts, but they didn't release those facts because they, if they had released them, the people wouldn't have taken And they can come out tomorrow and tell me there's going to be an epidemic, and they can drop off like flies to me. I will not take another shot that my government tells me to take. Meantime, Judy Roberts and some 4,000 others like her are still waiting. And they'll continue to wait. Even as we speak, the government is making it more difficult 
to get any form of recognition if you're injured. And that same Justice Department, as corrupt as it's always been, is the one that you have to go before. And you can't appeal the verdict. You can't bring in expert witnesses. The burden of proof is so hard, especially on its time restraint. So let's just say that you took a Gardasil vaccine or this vaccine coming, any of these vaccines coming, but you were not manifesting symptoms for the first six months and your symptom occurred in the seventh month. Good luck. Statute of limitations is gone. So you have an uncaring, unforgiving, completely adversarial system against you. And also this, how many vaccines would we have today if the manufacturers were held accountable for adverse effects? I'll bet we wouldn't have one twentieth, but they're not held to any account. To the contrary, you and I, our tax dollars, through the CDC or the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is given millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars to vaccine manufacturers. They then use our money to create a vaccine. Then they get to share in the uh, profits from that, but so does the CDC. That's its largest source of income, is vaccine revenue. So there's a conflict of interest. The, the agency telling us that we need the vaccines and put all these vaccines now up to 72 in the first six years of life, they get a profit off every one of those vaccines. And then you have all the scientists who get to share in profits. So what is the likelihood that greed and one's own financial stability will outweigh the moral conviction of doing the right thing? That is a question. And also now we're seeing, coming out of the woodwork, we're seeing all these highly respected voices today. The Connecticut pathologist, Dr. Sin, S-I-N, Hang Lee, H-A-N-G-L-E-E, and the Informed Consent Action Network have petitioned the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to require accurate counts of COVID cases in the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine trial. And until an accurate count of COVID-19 cases in the vaccinated and placebo groups has been determined for vaccine efficacy evaluation, we're asking the FDA to stay its decision regarding the emergency use authorization of the vaccine. That's according to Dr. Lee at his uh, molecular diagnostic laboratory. And he's a heavyweight, by the way. He is highly respected in his field. Uh, he's one of the best of the best. And... They have raised very serious concerns about let us see all of the evidence. In fact, a recent petition to the European Medicines Agency to stay the COVID-19 vaccine trials used similar arguments regarding the inaccuracy of the PCR test being used and the need for confirmatory sequencing. And on December 1st, Switzerland's medical regulator, Swiss Medic, said it lacks the necessary information to approve three different coronavirus vaccines ordered by the government, including the Pfizer vaccine. So you have to understand what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a massively powerful, politically connected, media-savvy industries that have dictated public health policy. And we, the public, are just, just like with the swine flu. We're just trusting. Now, if they can prove 
that the vaccines they're developing are safe, long-term, and effective at preventing this, and they've done none of the above. They gave us a press release, not peer-reviewed scientific studies that allow the top virologists, immunologists, pathologists to examine the data. And this was a leading American pathologist who simply said, we're going to see the evidence. And we were also told that millions of Americans now are shown to be cases of COVID. That's an out-and-out lie. That's a complete fabrication. There is no truth to that. Why? Because everyone everywhere is lining up to get their COVID test through the PCR. You will hear this week from the developer of the PCR who won the Nobel Prize, Dr. Craig Mullis. I just reviewed six hours of his tape yesterday uh, where he is stating, don't use this as a viral diagnostic. Diagnostic. It does not give you a viral load. It doesn't tell you the newness. It doesn't tell you the uniqueness. It just shows there's a particle there that we keep amplifying and amplifying and amplifying until it goes beyond where it can actually be used. And right now, the people doing the diagnos diagnostics with that PCR, they're amplifying that up around 35 or more times. Beyond 25 times, it's junk science. It doesn't mean anything. Also, what about the vast majority of people who are getting the test and it shows that they have some particle, some piece, some infinitesimal, insignificant, non-pathological piece in there, they'll test positive. Now they're a case, but a case is a clinical case with symptoms which needs to be helped and treated, ideally with a non-toxic approach. If you're at home, you can do a lot. My suggestion is the non-toxic medicines that have been shown to kill the coronavirus and prevent you from going from mild symptoms to major symptoms. That would be the most reasonable approach. And it's been shown in hundreds of millions of cases to work throughout the world in the last 65 years, like hydroxychloroquine. But the establishment, mainly the Democratic leadership, not the liberals, that's different. Those of us who have been liberals our whole life, far more left than any of the people who call themselves liberals, those people have politicized everything. They're on the side of big pharma. Just look where they get their money. And they say, ah, test positive, get the test, get, get the vaccine. But then you're not told the truth about the vaccine. So you see, there's a lot of misinformation, and I'm not the one telling you this. I'm merely providing a platform for highly respected credentials doctors from their table. They're sitting at their table, orthodox science, orthodox medicine's table, and they're saying this, but you won't hear their voices. You won't see them in debates anywhere because they would win, and the public would then have a pause. And there's a whole campaign now to attack anyone who challenges the safety and efficacy of anything being promoted by the COVID leadership. Here's just one four-second clip, because if you're asymptomatic, they want you to immediately quarantine positive. You're positive, but you're asymptomatic. Remember, you could have had a cold 10 years ago, and now you're positive. For something that was 10 years old, your body's got rid of it, this is the junkyard inside the system where these dead viruses, particles, remain. That'll test you positive if you get high enough amplification of a fraudulent study test. And here's what the CDC's top person on this had to say. 
to truly answer this question, it still appears to be rare that an asymptomatic individual actually transmits onward. Okay, you heard her say it, not me. She's saying it. Then why aren't we encouraging these people? Okay, you tested positive, but you're asymptomatic. All right. Why don't we take care of the healthy people by allowing them to return to work? Because the more people who get the test, the more are going to test positive. That does not mean they're sick or will get sick. The ones who are going to get sick and die first are the older people with comorbidities. But everybody, everybody being quarantined at the same time, in the same environment, more suicides occurred in Japan because of quarantine than died of COVID. Shouldn't that tell you something? Probably one of our finest oracles for the last 30 years is Chris Hedges. Chris had this to say. This is an article in Sheer Post. <clears throat> it's being posted on PRN.FM today. It's called The Collective Suicide <clears throat> of the Liberal Class. Quote, Liberals who express dismay or, more bizarrely, a, a fevered hope about the corporatists and imperialists selected to fill the positions in the Biden administration are the court gestures of our political burlesque. They long ago sold their soul and abandoned their most basic principles to line up behind a bankrupt Democratic Party. They chant with every election cycle the mantra of the least worse and sit placidly on the sidelines as a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama and the Democratic Party leadership betray every issue they claim to support. The only thing that mattered to liberals in the presidential race once again was removing a Republican, this time Donald Trump, from office. This the liberals achieved, but their Faustian bargain in election after election has shredded their credibility. They are ridiculed, not only among right-wing Trump supporters, but by the hierarchy of the Democratic Party that has been captured by corporate power. No one can or should take liberals seriously. They stand for nothing. They fight for nothing. The cost is too onerous. And so the liberals do what they always do, chatter endlessly about pol political and moral positions they refuse to make any sacrifice to achieve. Liberals largely comprise the professional managerial class that dutifully recycles and shops for organic produce is concentrated on the two coasts have profited from the ravages of neoliberalism. They seek to endow it with a, with a sense of civility, but their routine and public humiliation has ominous consequences. It not only exposes the liberal class as hollow and empty, it discredits the liberal democratic values they claim to uphold. Liberals should have abandoned the Democratic Party when Bill Clinton and political hacks such as Biden transformed the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and launched a war on traditional liberal values and left-wing populism. They should have defected by the millions to support Ralph Nader and other Green Party candidates. This defection, as Nader understood, was the only tactic that could force the Democrats to adopt parts of a liberal and left-wing agenda and save us from the slow-motion corporate coup d'etat. Fear is the real force behind political change. Not only promises of mutual goodwill, short of this pressure, this fear, especially with labor unions destroyed, there is no hope. Now we reap the consequences of the liberal class as moral and political cowardice. The Democratic Party elites 
revel in taunting liberals as well as the left-wing populists who preach class warfare and supported Bernie Sanders? How are we supposed to interpret the anointment of Anthony Blinken, one of the architects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and support of the apartheid state of Israel as Secretary of State, or John Kerry, who championed the massive expansion of domestic oil and gas production largely through fracking and, according to Barack Obama's memoir, worked doggedly to convince those concerned about the climate crisis to, quote, offer up concessions on subsidies for the nuclear power industry and the opening of the additional coastlines to offshore oil drilling. As the new climate policies are, or Brian Deese, the executive who was in charge of the climate portfolio at BlackRock, who invests heavily in fossil fuels, including coal, and who served as the former Obama economic advisor who had advocated austerity measures to run the White House's economic policy, or Nira Tandon, for director of the Office of Management and Budget, who as president of the Center for American Progress raised millions in dark money for, from Silicon Valley and Wall Street while relentlessly ridiculing Bernie Sanders and his supporters on cable news and social media, and who proposed a plank in the Democratic platform calling for bombing Iran. The Biden administration resembles the ineffectual German government formed by Franz von Papen in 1932 that sought to recreate the ancient regime a utopian a conservatism that ensured Germany's drift into fascism. Biden, bereft like Van Papen of new ideas and programs, will eventually be forced to employ the brutal tools Biden as a senator was so prominent in creating to maintain social control. Wholesale surveillance, a corrupt judicial system, the world's largest prison system, and police that had been transformed into lethal paramilitary units of internal occupation. Those that resist as social unrest mounts will be attacked as agents of a foreign power and censored, as many already ha are being censored, including through algorithms and deplatforming on social media. The most ardent and successful dissidents, such as Julian Assange, will be criminalized. And it goes on from there. That's what people got. So, for those of us who are progressive, we're looking for the truth, not an ideology. And in time, by challenging as we can, we'll make a difference. It won't be soon, though. I'm just trying to let you know, before you trust the old regime, Trump's or the new one, Biden's, when it comes to COVID and vaccines and identity cards, maybe you should ask what rights you're giving up in the process that once you've given them, you will not be able to ever get them back. Let us now go over to Great Britain. We're sending by is Elizabeth McCormick, and she has read your emails, and we'll see what one. And by the way, for our WBI listeners, we'll go for another three minutes, but for everyone else, we will continue on to the top of the hour with Elizabeth and the questions that you've asked or the, the information you're sharing. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Gary. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. A question today comes from Leonard. He says, respectfully, you are just one person against the machine. Isn't it all just a waste of time? My brother happens to feel you're foolish or delusional, thinking you can make a difference, as you do realize you're going up against all of corporate America, all the government agencies, all the mainstream media. It's why I feel I don't want to get involved in anything myself. Do we really think we can all make a difference? I'm not being cynical, just realistic. Comments, please. 
This is not the first time that someone has suggested I'm delusional when it comes to making a difference. And indeed, I am not delusional because I know that on many cases I do not make a difference. The fact that I do not make a difference, that you do not see something happening that changes uh, Citizens United from being uh, completely expunged from our consciousness so that we do not allow small groups to control our future in elections. The fact that I'm delusional thinking that knowing how bad the environment is and how worse it's going to become and how it's going to affect people means that people are going to make changes because of that information. I'm also not delusional when it comes to telling people who are every, every fork or knife that they use in a meal, they're putting something in their body that could be causing their early demise or disease, that they're going to change because they now have this new awareness. Information in and of itself does not mean transformation or change. Just getting people's attention is a challenge. So no, I'm fully aware of how insignificant that I am as an individual, but I'm not insignificant for the people whose lives I've helped one-on-one -on -one or in groups. I just watched something yesterday that I didn't even know existed, a 1995 longevity study, a year and a half meeting once a month, and there were so many people, over a 1,000 people, that we had to take a giant uh, uh, school auditorium on the east side. But there was the camera, and here's all these people who had been in this anti-aging study with great success. The testimony is one guy lost 140 pounds, another guy lost 180 pounds, hair started growing back, arthritis gone. All these wonderful improvements. I'm now going to go through all the original archive and find it and then rehabilitate it and put it up online for people who want to see the protocols that were done 25 years ago, uh, actually longer than that, 30, 35 years ago, uh, when we actually started all this. So for those people, it's not delusional. Are you near a computer? I am, yes. Okay, real quick, because people can have an impact in ways that are subtle and under the radar. All right, Google three of the most, uh, let's go four of the most popular documentaries ever done. Let's take Michael Moore's. Um, let's take his Bowling for Columbine. Um, let's take his, all right, a Sicko, about mm -hmm. our medical system, and one other, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. Now, what okay. are the numbers under Google search, and put documentary after each one, so it's very specific. What are the numbers? Right, okay, Bowling for Columbine. What's the number? It'll be up in the upper left-hand side. Oh, yes, I see it. It's um, 1,140,000. Okay. And what about Sicko? For Sicko, it's 526,000. And what about Fahrenheit 9-11? Okay. That is 806,000. Okay, and one of the most popular documentaries ever done, um, An Inconvenient Truth, the documentary by Al Gore. That would probably have the largest number. That is 3,650,000. Okay, that means that there are people looking specifically for a documentary with those titles, breaking down the different words. Okay, and then it depends upon how many, uh, how many other titles like that are in that, and then you see the top ones, and you'll see it on the right-hand side. You'll see the documentary and Michael Moore, etc. Okay, that those were significant. 
All right, they, they cause people to wake up. Now, let's just do ones that have never been uh, theatrically released. Not on television, not in a movie theater. Let's see if what I've done has had any impact at all. Let's take um, uh, Seeds of Death, uh, Vaccine Nation, Autism Made in USA, uh, Death by Medicine, and I'll save the last. Get those real quick. Okay, Seeds of Death. That's 10,400,000. Okay, the next one? Um, autism made in the USA, 7,810,000. Okay, vaccination. And put the word documentary after every one. That narrows it. The search results. Um, okay, autism made in the USA. Um, sorry, vaccine nation. Um, that is nineteen million five hundred thousand. Okay, death by medicine. <clears throat> death by medicine. Eighty-four million five hundred thousand. And one more. Um, the War on Health documentary. That's 154 million. Search results. Okay. Yeah. So what do we have here? From two of the most prominent documentarians in American history, Al Gore and Michael Moore, we have collectively around um, 6 million in four of their documentaries. And we have almost two hundred, over 200 million in mine, never shown in a theater, never shown on television, no campaigns, no tours in the United States, no appearing on anyone's television show to promote them, word of mouth. Okay, and that's, I've got another 45 documentaries I could give you. So when a person says you have no significance, it's a futile effort, why are you trying? Are they aware of that sharing? and why someone would go out of their way to find information. And if you look, you'll see that, like, at one point, it was the first 15 pages, every entry on the page was uh, death by medicine. At one time, we were over a billion search results, most searched documentary in history that we're aware of. So we all have a role to play, and it starts by being aware not to be discouraged because the initial efforts do not show any obvious results, because I can tell you there's a lot of people today who are alive and well, who are healthy, because they were motivated by either a book or an article or a broadcast or a PBS special, or appearance in one of the hundreds of debates I've done, or these documentaries to decide, yeah, that makes some sense, let me try that. And so, why do you think that there is so much vaccine resistance today? These are all pro-vaccine people who suddenly began to want to know more of the story before they lined up to become another potential victim like in the swine flu. So you see, we each have a role to play as long as we don't be dis are not discouraged by those who have given up. Why fight at all? It's all corrupt. Why, why do anything? No, I knew when I was voting for, uh, Bernie, uh, for, uh, uh for, Joe Stein and Rocky Anderson and Ralph Nader repeatedly, I knew that they had no chance of winning. 
but I refuse to be a part of the lesser of two evils. I'm not going to support either evil. And only can you do something when you agree to get off their grid and create something better. We have to create populist parties. We have to create a more viable environmental movement that's not controlled, uh, like the Sierra Club and some of these others, uh, by ideologues. And so, yeah, we're not going to change the bigger picture, but boy, can we change people's perception. Remember, you have more independence than ever before in American history. Over 110 million independents. How many of those became independent because of something that was motivated by a word of mouth? So yeah, we'll keep fighting in our own way without the headlines to do the best we can. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, for okay, sharing thank that you. email. All the best, yeah. We'll see you next week. We're out of time, everyone. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.